Milwaukee philanthropist and socialite Sue Shesdiva was known in the early 2000s for throwing elegant fundraisers, buying out charity auctions to ensure that they were a financial success and being the life of those events while dressed in expensive designer clothing and accoutrements. But behind closed doors, Sue was racking up tremendous amounts of debt and using her employer, Cost Corp's bank account, to fund her lifestyle and compulsive spending habits. Don't miss this episode where we discuss the shocking story of how Sue embezzled over $34 million. Hey guys, Michael Thomas here. And this is Drew Howell. Welcome to our fourth episode of Busted. As you know by now, we're focusing this series on the trusted employee. That's right. We've looked at some successful businesses that had employees exploit the trust they had earned with their employer. We've talked about unions that were victimized by its administrator. And today we are going to look at a case involving charitable giving and how supposed do-gooders are sometimes given too much latitude. And it is shocking what they are able to get away with. All right, Drew, you introduced us to Sue and CostCorp in the introduction. Why don't we start with who is CostCorp? Sure. CostCorp started in 1958. It was based in Milwaukee. And Cost had its ups and downs just like any young company, but really broke through in 1985 in what was the budding headphone and related accessory market. And in 1987, Michael Cost took over the title of president from his father, John Cost, who founded the company. He later added the title of CEO in 1991. Some worried that Michael wouldn't do well at running the company because he had an anthropology degree from a small liberal arts college. But those fears quickly subsided when the Cost Corp grew to over $26 million in annual revenue. Michael Cost was then given broad powers and ultimately held the titles of president, CEO, COO, CFO, and vice chairman of the board. But even the most driven, workaholic person would have tough time handling all those duties and responsibilities for a company of over 70 employees and $38 million in revenue. Not to mention that corporate governance experts often recommend that combining CEO and CFO should never happen. It's a risky endeavor, and it's rarely a good idea because the CEO and CFO Those positions are designed to look over each other's shoulders to make sure the other one's doing what they should be doing. Yeah, suffice it to say, Michael Koss had a lot of responsibilities. And so actually within a year of being appointed to all these various positions, he then appointed the then 29-year-old Sue Shastiva as vice president of finance and the company's principal accounting officer. Effectively, she was acting as the company's CFO because Michael Koss was simply spread so thin he couldn't handle all those responsibilities. So it was very quick after she was brought into the company that Koss handed Sue a lot of authority over the company's financials. And it was a very interesting relationship that existed between Michael Koss and Sue. One retailer described the relationship as more like that of a husband and wife, recalling a situation where Michael Cost asked, asked Sue on a phone call where the first quarter financials were. And she said, I said I would get them later when I have time. And she just walked away. So it was a very interesting relationship. Yeah, we're going to see that that relationship and, and that authority that Sue was given is ultimately what she exploited. That's right. right. 
Okay, Drew, then let's talk a little bit about Sue. How did Sue hold herself out to the community? Well, Sue was known as a Milwaukee socialite and philanthropist. In the community, she was known as a giver. She would go to auctions, bid up prices on the items, and in many instances, if they didn't sell, she would just buy them. At one boy and girls club fundraiser, she put up $100,000 just putting it on her Amex. And at an American Heart Association fundraiser, she bought everything that didn't sell to the tune of almost $50,000. She definitely had the persona and put it out there that she was fabulously wealthy. Yeah, she told people that her and her husband, Ramesh, made a couple million dollars a year, that she herself made half a million dollars a year, and that they both came from really wealthy Indian families. They were introduced by their mothers who went to the same sorority. So she had a really compelling backstory. Well, and it it went further than that. She actually had a very detailed backstory to back this up. She would tell people that Ramesh's father was a high-ranking military official in India, as well as an orthopedic surgeon. And he was so powerful that Ramesh and Sue were able to spend their honeymoon night in the Taj Mahal. For herself, she would explain that she had grown up on Long Island, one of three children of Indian immigrants. She detailed that her father had become the city's chief engineer. And as a child, she would watch her parents go to galas. And that was what started her dream of wanting to do that herself one day. So she had a pretty fantastic background story. But I think what we're going to find out is that wasn't the reality. In reality, Sue is living a little bit of a double life, wouldn't you say, Michael? I would say so. I mean, by... Nearly every measure, Sue and Ramesh didn't have a bad life. They made good income and had really accomplished careers. Sue worked with Smith Barney, a brokerage firm in New York, and then ultimately moved over to Arthur Anderson in New York. Her and her husband moved to Milwaukee in the early 90s when Ramesh began a fellowship at a children's hospital. He had a law degree, an MBA, and a doctorate in addition to his medical degree. So he was really well-educated. He became one of the nation's leading experts in improving pediatric health care around the country. For her part, Sue was also really well accomplished. When they moved to Milwaukee, Sue became vice president of the Cost Corporation, where she received the star treatment. When Ramesh got his fellowship in Houston in 1993, Sue was allowed to keep her job at the Cost Corporation and telecommute from Texas. That was highly unusual for that time period. Uh, The magazine High Visibility wrote that she may be the only CFO in the country who telecommutes. And she was allowed to continue this practice for over 10 years, telecommuting at least two days a week, even after the family returned to Wisconsin in 1999. Yeah, like you said, they were well accomplished and lived a pretty nice life, but they were not quite from the wealthy or notorious Indian families that Sue presented Family friends recalled that Sue's mother, who dyed her hair loud purple and red and wore very loud lipstick, and her father was really well known for his polyester knit pants. So they didn't come from the money Sue represented, they weren't wealthy, and they weren't frequent gala attendees either. What about their storybook wedding at the Taj Mahal? Yeah, you could call it a fairy tale or a lie, whichever you want, but the Taj Mahal doesn't have any overnight accommodations. They simply did not come from a wealthy background. Ramesh's salary was estimated to be closer to about $600,000 a year. 
and Koss SEC filings showed that Sue's salary peaked in around 2008 at $206,000. You know, it is kind of surprising that people believe the Taj Mahal story, considering the Taj Mahal is a tomb, not a hotel. But. Be surprised what people will believe, Michael. <laughs> So obviously, the Koss Corporation was a victim of Sue's fraud, but another victim was her husband, Ramesh. He was not in on Sue's scheme. Neighbors say that when Ramesh was away, Sue would buy more and more. And a day or two before he got home, a U-Haul would pull up to the garage and Sue's caretaker and some of his buddies would spend all day loading it. And retailers would recall that most of the time, Sue didn't even take her purchasers with her when she left the store. She would refuse retailers' delivery officers and promise to send someone to pick up her items. But more often than not, that did not happen. The shops would end up storing hundreds or even thousands of items that she had purchased. And Sue was a notoriously slow payer. Retailers were forbidden from sending bills to her home or her office. And now in hindsight, we obviously know why. And when she did pay, it was often in a very strange fashion. One retailer commented that she remembered that Sue paid a $7,000 tab with $100 bills. And other retailers commented that she paid a $20,000 check that bounced. And still others said that she would pay with Amex issued checks or money orders or traveler's checks. It was just an unusual way of paying her bills. Yeah, and we've now discussed the great lengths that she went to ensure that her husband didn't know about these things, making sure that items were not coming to the house, bills were not coming to the house. But when it all came crashing down, one of Ramesh's colleagues recalls him saying that he didn't even know what he owned. He literally just moved out of the house with the clothes on his back, leased a car, and checked into an extended stay hotel. Needless to say, Ramesh and Sue's marriage has come to an end, and his colleagues at the Children's Hospital really rallied around him and his kids to get them back on their feet. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the extent of Sue's fraud. Sue's embezzlement began in about 1997, around five years after she was hired, and it continued until her arrest in December of 2009. During those 12 years, she authorized more than 500 cashier's checks worth about $17.5 million, 10 million of which went to American Express, and much more went to Neiman Marcus, Sachs, and some charitable groups. But we also know that she used Cost Corporation's money to pay local retailers, her servants, travel expenses, and home improvement bills. I mean, she bought so much that she was having to buy places to put all the stuff she was buying. She was sending her purchases to a storage space she rented because she was getting 20 to 30 packages every day. And she ran out of space in her 4,000 square foot home to put all this stuff. When her clothes and items started mildewing and mice started eating the various items that she bought, she ultimately rented a thousand square foot space on the fifth floor of the Marshall Building in Milwaukee. Let's talk a little bit about that real quick. How much stuff do you have to be buying? to need to rent a thousand square foot space in addition to your 4,000 square foot home in order just to house it all? A lot. And she was buying a lot. She had five of the same dresses and, and three of those dresses were in the size 12 and two of them were in a size 10. She was literally buying the same thing over and over again. She would also buy things like China. And we're not talking about sets of China and eight or 12 play settings. She was buying China in 24 different play settings. Every time she threw a new dinner party or a new event, she was buying 
new China to go along with that. Yeah. And if you look at some of the items that were recovered, her purchases weren't even logical. And you, you can go back and review some of the accounts of the stores that she was buying things at. And some of these shopkeepers recall instances where she would come in and say, I want to purchase this. And they would look at her and say, well, you've already purchased that. Or maybe you've already purchased that multiple times. And the response they got was, I get to decide what I'm going to buy. You don't get to tell me what I can and can't buy. So there wasn't even, her purchases don't make sense to the normal person. Yeah. And when the FBI raided the Marshall building, they found just how much she had bought. They found over 460 boxes of shoes, 65 racks of designer clothing, 50 plastic storage containers of statutes and paintings and Waterford crystal, Louis Vuitton luggage glassware, chandelier, furs. She had it all. Yeah. And and what we also know is that as she got closer to the end of her scheme there in December of 2009, she started selling her best designer items and trying to pay off her credit cards. There was a secondhand store in the Marshall building called the Cranston Couture. And the owner said that Sue sold a couple thousand items there in the year and a half leading up to her December 2009 arrest. Cost records show that Sue took $2.2 million over fiscal years 2005 and 2006, $3.2 million in 2007, $5 million in 2008, $8.5 million in the first half of 2009, and another $10.2 million from July 2009 up to December 2009 when she was arrested keeps getting worse and worse. And we also know that, like we said, she was towards the end trying to sell items and pay off her credit card bill. Towards the end, she was paying a million dollars a month from the cost accounts towards her credit card bills. And a friend recalls that in November 2009, right before her arrest, Sue broke down in her car. And the friend said, I think she knew the play was coming to an end. She just kept sobbing and sobbing But then we got close to her house, she stopped and fixed her makeup. So that gives you a little bit idea of the act that Sue was putting on. And what's interesting about all of that is when the music stopped and she realized her scheme was about to be up, she started selling off this stuff and she wasn't trying to pay back the cost corporation, the people she stole the money from. She was trying to pay her own credit card debt and trying to get out of her own way. So in December 2009, the FBI raided Sue's house. And in addition to everything they found in the Marshall buildings, it took 30 agents over three days to pack more than 22,000 items that were bought using stolen money. The FBI also collected at the cost company headquarters 38 boxes of merchandise that were purchased with stolen money. Sue is said to have told the FBI that she wondered how long it was going to take to get caught. Sue's fraudulent scheme ultimately resulted in criminal charges. The grand jury indicted Sue on six counts of wire fraud. But Sue's fraud was much more extensive than those six counts. Between 2008 and 2009 alone, she authorized over 206 fraudulent transfers. But from the six counts that she was charged with, Sue faced 120 years in prison. Sue ultimately signed a plea deal, slashing her sentence to six years and requiring her to pay $34 million in restitution. As part of that deal, she admitted to stealing $34 million from the Cost Corporation, but many estimate that she stole much more than $34 million. Sue was released from jail in 2017, 
And still today, her fraud was one of the largest in Wisconsin history and one of the largest in the United States in 2009. One of the things I find most interesting, Michael, is the defense that people anticipated Sue was going to put forward in this criminal proceeding. Many thought that she was going to claim she suffered from a condition called oniomania, which is a compulsive buying disorder that has been used in legal proceedings to argue for lighter sentences. The argument's been made hasn't necessarily worked out that well for people making the argument, but nonetheless, it has been made. However, in this case, the U.S. district attorney that was prosecuting her case quickly put the kibosh on that notion, calling it irrelevant. What he said was, the issue here is stealing, not shopping. Sue wasn't addicted to stealing. She was rational enough to know if she put her purchases on her own credit card, her husband wouldn't know about them. That showed that she had the ability to control what she was doing. Now, it's hard to imagine how a company with about $2 million in annual profit didn't miss as much as $34 million from its bottom line in over 12 years. Many argued that Sue's continuous theft was so large and blatant that even the most basic of reviews would have uncovered it. Financial blogs and accounting newsletters have talked about this case ad nauseum and have contended that having a CEO slash CFO with an anthropology degree, was an obvious problem. That's right. And forensic accountants also pointed to cost corporations' relaxed family culture as an indication that there was a lack of oversight. Industry standards would require the CFO, the company's outside auditor, in this case, Grant Thornton, and members of the cost board's audit committee to review the company's financials for potential fraud. But like we said, even the most basic of reviews would have shown that the fraud that was occurring, and so that wasn't happening. In 2007, the journal Sentinel described the cost boardroom as set up like a living room, and accountingweb.com reported that its corporate board rarely changed. Other than adding a new member in 2006 and the founder, John Koss, the board members had an average tenure of 27 years. In the case of John Koss, his tenure was longer than that. They noted that the failure to regularly instill new thinking and perspective into the board has long been considered a likely factor for enabling fraud to occur. CostCorp's audit committee members also did not have any accounting expertise like that of a typical public company. According to Koss's 2008 proxy, the committee relied on two meetings a year with Grant Thornton to, quote, discuss their evaluation of the company's internal financial controls, end quote, which is now, we know, a job that Grant Thornton says it wasn't even hired to do. Because it was a small company, Koss Corporation could, and they did, opt out of the federal Sarbanes-Oxley Act. That act requires outside auditors to evaluate internal financial controls of larger companies. Smaller companies like Cost Corporation can opt out. Michael Koss told Family Business Magazine in 2007 that they were opting out because the costs were galling and the extra hours would be better spent on strategic planning than on additional audit committee meetings. You know, lawyers and accountants often get a bad rap for putting in these barriers and roadblocks in place, but these barriers or roadblocks are actually guide rails to prevent these types of frauds from happening. From 2007 to 2008, the middle of Sue's theft, SEC filings show that Cost's audit fees dropped from $114,000 a year 
to $63,000. A retired Fortune 500 company CFO said that several standard type controls could have easily detected such sizable improper activity. Some might say that Sue's fraud, which could have been easily found, wasn't found because she bought the trust of those around her. For instance, she was very close with Michael Koss. She hosted his daughter's baby shower in her home. When his son was stricken with Crohn's disease, she orchestrated a fashion show to raise money for research, where, of course, she bought any auction items that languished to ensure that the event was a success. And Michael Koss told investigators that he didn't see all the things that Sue was buying, but he was only in the office three or four times a year. He did recall seeing boxes of clothing stacked to the ceiling in the office right next to hers, but it didn't strike him as an issue. Yeah, the two cost employees who were most likely to spot Sue's fraud were Sue's subordinate accountants, who were also her good friends. Sue even hired one of those accountants' husbands as the caretaker for Sue's home because he couldn't get a job anywhere else due to his multiple felony convictions. And Cost Corp's own internal records ultimately show that there were multiple unauthorized payments to these accountants, which begged the question of whether or not they were in on the scheme. Yeah, and many have characterized Sue's relationship with Cost Corp's outside auditor, Grant Thornton, as improper. In 2006, she co-chaired a fundraising gala for Big Brothers Big Sisters with one of Cost's two outside auditors with Grant Thornton. Um, that individual, a short time later, became a head of Grant Thornton's Wisconsin practice. Well, Michael, this was a fun one. The real story here wasn't this fantastically elaborate fraud scheme that Sue undertook, but rather the great efforts that she took to hide the fruits of her fraud and the persona that she put on to blind those with the most potential to uncover her wrongdoings. Yeah, and it's a really good reminder that while the companies lose millions of dollars from these fraud schemes, they're not usually the only ones affected. In this case, Sue's family was affected. Her husband lost everything as a result of his wife's fraud because, you know, as he himself said, he didn't know what he owned and what cost corporation. That's owned. right. Different perspective. Well, join us next time for the next episode of Busted. But in the meantime, like, subscribe, and tell your friends. Thank you for listening to this production from Foley and Lardner, LLP. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and is intended as a general overview. The podcast does not constitute legal advice nor solicitation to provide legal services. It's not meant to convey a legal position of Foley and Lardner, LLP, on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. Any opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the firm, its partners, or its clients. The podcast is not intended to create, and listening to the podcast does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The listener should not act upon this information without seeking counsel from a licensed attorney. Foley makes no representations or warranties of any kind, expressed or implied, as to the content of the podcast or to its accuracy or completeness, and accepts no responsibility for an individual who acts or refrains from acting based on information obtained from the podcast. In some jurisdictions, the contents of this podcast may be considered attorney advertising. If applicable, please note that prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.